So the statement is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Now we hear that, and it truly fits our lives. For example, many people think newborn babies are beautiful. But then there are others, if they dare to be honest, who would say they look like bald little men with jowls who cry and sleep a lot. They're not beautiful. I don't know what camp you're in. This morning on your way in, you may have been thinking that the snow is beautiful and others were thinking not so much. I think my garage is beautiful right now. The bikes are hanging from the ceiling. A car can actually park in there. And if you were to walk in, you would say, ah, looks like a garage, smells like a garage. I don't see any beauty to this. For some engineers, math, chemistry, it's beautiful. Figuring out angles and load capabilities, seeing molecular compounds come together to make a new, make a new product. And for others, math and chemistry is a terrible burden. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so we want to ask the question, what is beautiful to Jesus? And what is beautiful to Jesus then leads us to ask a further question, am I walking in the beauty that Jesus sees? With that said, let's remember what Mark is all about. Going way back to the beginning of Mark, Mark opens up his gospel and he tells us that Jesus is both the Christ or the deliverer and the son of God. As Mark unfolds his gospel, we see his Christ nature. We see his ability to deliver like no one else can. People are enslaved to demons. They're enslaved to leprosy. And Jesus comes and demonstrates his Christ nature by overpowering the demons, overpowering the leprosy, and freeing people from those oppressions. And so the thought on behalf of the people is, if Jesus can overcome those kinds of powers, surely he is the Messiah who's been promised, which he is, and then he will overthrow this great power that's on our necks, that is the Roman Empire, and he will lead us into the kingdom, which he will lead us into the kingdom, but the deliverance that he came to provide was a different deliverance than what people were anticipating. He is the Christ. Not only is he the Christ, but he's also the Son of God. And from the very beginning of Mark's gospel, we see Jesus being attributed as the Son of God. At his baptism in chapter 1, verse 11, the Father says, This is my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son. In the early chapters, you see Jesus interacting with the demons. And the demons will say things like, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They're attributing deity to him. And then Jesus himself, he comes to the Sabbath at the end of chapter 2, and he has this little tussle with the Pharisees, and he says to them that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, who is really the Lord of the Sabbath? None other than God himself. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus drops the biggest bomb about his deity with the paralytic who is lowered down through the roof. He's laying right in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, your faith has made you well. Your sins are forgiven. And there's a, there's a bunch of people that are standing there and saying, hey, wait a second. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus says, 
that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And he turns to the paralytic and he says, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And he gets up and he walks away. And everybody has to stand back and say, he is the one who has the God power to him. He must be God. And so what Mark is doing is he's providing story after story for us throughout his gospel so that we would know who Jesus truly is. Now, if Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of God, there ought to be a response from the people to him. And there are two responses that are generally laid out in the book of Mark. There is the response of acceptance, and as we see Jesus moving from the north to the south, we see at least in his initial ministry, lots of people accepting him. But there's also the response of rejection. And we see from north to south how the religious leaders, they're a small minority in Jesus' ministry right now, but they're the ones who are rejecting Jesus, and their crowd will grow now in the coming chapters, chapter 14 and 15. So here's who Jesus is, his nature. He is the Christ, he is the Son of God. And what is our response to him? Are we surrendered to him as Lord, accepting him? Or are we rejecting him? As we come to chapter 14, it's as though Mark is taking the ratchet and tightening things up and showing us that the response to Jesus is only going to intensify. Those who accept him, it's going to come with a cost. And those who accept him grow fewer in number. Those who reject him, their response is intensifying over the next two chapters, and their number is growing. And so this morning, we're going to come to this opening part of chapter 14, and we see a woman who is accepting Jesus. But verses 1 and 2, let's start our sermon here. Verses 1 and 2, we simply see a blatant enemy. Now, what's going on in this Opening section here to chapter 14, Mark sets the scene for us. He lets us know what's going on. And he tells us in verse 1 that it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover, a very deeply religious holiday in the life of the Jews. It dates back from Jesus' point approximately 1,300 years. What's the Passover? The Passover is the celebration of how God came to his people and in his strength redeemed them or pulled them out of Egypt. God had come to Pharaoh and he had told them, let my people go. He wouldn't. And so he sent 10 plagues of judgment against them. The 10th plague of judgment was the plague that broke Pharaoh's back in, other, in so many words to let the people go. It was the Passover. For the Jews, they were told Take a lamb and take that lamb, kill it, and take the blood and sprinkle it over the doorposts of your home. Lather, I should say, over the doorpost of your home. And that evening, eat the lamb. And while you're having that meal, there also ought to be bread that accompanies it. And we see that it's a, an unleavened bread. Why was it unleavened? Leaven is yeast. And when you're working the dough, you sprinkle some yeast in there. And then you leave the dough alone so that the yeast can permeate through the dough and cause it to get fluffy. It takes time. For that particular night, God was saying, there's not time here. 
We're going to move quickly, no yeast, get your dough, throw it in the oven, be ready to eat. Why? Because your redemption could come at any moment. And with these thoughts, you can't help but wonder if, G, or if Mark is calling our attention back to chapter 13, where redemption can come at any moment, final redemption can come at any moment, Jesus can come at any moment, stay awake, stay alert, because it could happen at any time. And that's the theme of Passover, where God's redemption could come at any time. And here's Christ who's on the scene in Jerusalem. And so it says here in Jerusalem that the Sanhedrin or the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, but not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. What's the feast now? Once a year, the Jews celebrated this holiday of Passover, remembering their independence, if you will. And the city of Jerusalem swells to some say 10 times its number. If the population of Jerusalem was around 30,000, 40,000, scholars estimate that it's around 250 to 300,000. If you've heard Josephus's number, who was an early church historian, we don't believe that his number was correct. He said approximately three, three million people came to Jerusalem. It seems as though he may have added an extra zero, just the calculations were off. But Jerusalem is swollen with people Jews, male Jews who lived within 15 miles of the city were expected to attend this holiday annually. And then every Jew, whether it was a Jew who had been deported to Babylon or displaced by the Assyrian Empire years earlier and their families had settled there, at least once in their lifetime, they wanted to make it back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So all of these pilgrims are flooding into Jerusalem, packing out the city. One of them being Jesus, who has caused this great stir up in Galilee and people throughout the countryside and the little villages are talking about Jesus, the one who can heal leprosy. Only the Messiah could do that. The one who can cast out demons. Wow, this is God. And he's making his way into Jerusalem. And just a few days before this, he has raised a dead man. And so the crowds are thinking, this is our man. But the religious leaders have been displaced by him. He's humiliated them. You remember that back in chapters 11 and 12. And so they want him dead and the crowds want him to sit on the throne. A real internal civil war that's taking place. So the thought on behalf of the religious leaders is, we can't do this while all of his supporters are here in town. Just not a good time. There's going to be an uproar. But how can we stealthily do this while he's in town here? we got to get our hands on him. That's the mood, and Jesus knows what he's facing. So now we move into verses 3 through 9. Verses 3 through 9, we see a beautiful act that takes place. It tells us that he's in the village of Bethany. Bethany is just a stone's throw outside of Jerusalem. When all of the pilgrims came down to Jerusalem for this feast, there wasn't enough room. So they would spill over into nearby towns. And he's there at a place, at a house, and we're told whose house it is. We're told that it's Simon the leper. Now, leprosy was a disease that cut you off from the community. It couldn't be healed. And here's another testimony that says, here's an individual whose life speaks to the changing power of Jesus. 
This guy, Simon, is now hosting Jesus in his home. And everybody that was there would know he was the guy that had leprosy. Jesus changed his life. There's another guy in attendance if you look at John chapter 12. The guy that's in attendance there is the once dead man, Lazarus. So this is a meeting of people in this house whose lives have been changed by this man, Jesus, which is kind of a big celebration now that's taking place. So it's mealtime. And as was the custom there, um, folks would recline at a low-lying table. So you can imagine a table in the middle of a room, a first-century home, and there could be little cot-like um, like beds that would lean up toward the table or pillows that could be stuffed under one arm and the legs would be back and people would be reclining up at the table, reaching over, grabbing, and eating that way. And so here is Jesus on the ground, most likely with his disciples around the table eating with him. And while he's eating, it says that a woman comes to him with an alabaster flask. Culturally, this wasn't supposed to happen. If this was a meal for the men, the women would eat in a separate place, or their purpose for that particular moment there would be shuttling food in and out. And so this woman breaks protocol by approaching Jesus, who's reclining at the table, and in her hand, the Bible tells us that she has an alabaster flask. Alabaster is simply a soft stone. If you've got a chunk of alabaster, you could take, you know, a hand drill, if you will, and bore out the middle of it, smooth it out. You could take a file and smooth out all of the external surface, and you could use it to house or hold liquid. And this woman approaches Jesus with this soft, sealed up alabaster jar. And the Bible says that inside of it is ointment, pure nard that is very costly. This ointment that's pure nard, comes from India. That's a plant that is native to India. So you can imagine first century, traders would make their way to the Mediterranean world. Jerusalem was sort of the center city. They could go north into Europe. They could go south into Africa. But they would bring their spices along those trade routes. And here, this woman has this flask of very expensive ointment. Now, scholars would say that a flask like this could be used for several purposes. One, it could be used as a dowry exchange for somebody's marriage. So if a husband was going to pay a bride price, he could pay in terms of this expensive flask. So maybe this woman had this because A, she was either married, or B, her son, or her dad was going to use this or it came into the family because of marriage. It could be an heirloom that was passed down from generation to generation. You don't get rid of it. You hold on to it. Or third, sometimes scholars say that these flasks with ointment like this would be preserved for the individual and upon their death, the family would break the flask open and anoint the dead body and then bury it. Either way, 
you can see that this is something that is meant to be preserved for specific reasons. And Mark doesn't name this woman. This woman comes into this dining room where Jesus is holding this jar and it says that she breaks the flask. So maybe she has stone in her hand that breaks the stone and you can see her carrying it and then just knocking this flask and little pieces of stone falling off of it and now it's opened. And as soon as it's opened, there is an invisible aroma that moves out from the flask all around the room and everyone can smell this, this perfume, this ointment that she has. And she comes over to Jesus who is laying on his side at the table, reclining at the table. And the text says that she anoints his head. So she's taking the flask, this broken flask now, and pouring out what could be approximately a quart of liquid and starting at his head. And you can imagine the liquid pouring through his hair, around his forehead. John says that she anointed his feet and then wiped up the excess with her hair. So visually, all attention is right there in this moment. She has worked her way from his head, probably down through his garments, and then all the way down to his feet, and then with that last move, takes her hair as an act of humility and just wipes up the excess ointment. All eyes are on her at this point. There's a response in verse 4. There were some who said among themselves, could be a, a way of translating that, among themselves, so they're right next to one another and they're talking about this, and here's my thoughts on this. Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they then scolded her for doing it. Again, if you bring John 12 into this, we know who the they were. One of them is Judas. He's the one who responds to this. And the text says in John chapter 12 that Judas responded to this woman this way because he used to keep the money purse. And 300 denarii, if it was sold, could be placed in the money purse. And he used to like to dip his hand into the money purse for himself when nobody was looking. He was a thief, young people. The Bible says here with this indignant anger, it's not some sort of soft, casual, skeptical thing. It has the idea that their nose, their, their nostrils were just flaring out like a bull because they saw this waste of money on Jesus and said, this is an abuse of money. It could be used for better things. And then they dropped the bomb. This bomb that leaves everybody asking a question. Shouldn't this have been sold and given to people in need? Now think about Jesus for just a moment. He's reclining at the table. The flask emptied out on him. And these people are calling her judgment into question. And they're calling his worth into question. Woman, like, do you judge this man to be that worthy? 
Why would you worship him like that? And then Jesus, the one who received it, is like, uh, you know, in my mind, if I were that, I'm like, uh, well, thanks for the kind insult. I must be chopped liver and uh, kind of hard to respond to that comment that it should have been sold to and given to the poor because, yes, the poor, yeah, they could use it. I mean, how are you supposed to respond to that kind of question? Well, what Jesus does is he responds with truth. And in verse 6, he tells them, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? And in that statement, what I love is that Jesus steps up on behalf of this woman and makes this not about her, but about himself. He could have stopped this event from happening in the first place by simply saying to Mary, Mary, no, 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 don't pour that out. I see what you're doing. This is thoughtful of you, but you really should save your resources for something or someone more meaningful than me. Maybe you should do that for somebody else. He could have said that, but he doesn't. Notice what Jesus does say about this woman. He says about her, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And with that one statement, Jesus settles the debate. Her act of worshiping Jesus in this extravagant way is a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It's, its essence in Jesus' perspective is fitting. This is how it's supposed to be. Is it because man agrees and sees it as beautiful in his eyes? No, it's not. It's because it is beautiful in Jesus' eyes. It's beautiful because Jesus says so. When given the opportunity to worship Jesus in an extravagant way, it is a beautiful thing. You think about the beauty of a rose. The beauty of a rose is to bloom and show its dark, rich red petals. The beauty of an eagle is to see it soaring up in the sky, just following those, those wind patterns and being majestic like that. What is the beauty of a Christian? What is the beauty of a Christian? The beauty of a Christian life is when a man, a woman, a child sees Jesus of such supreme value that whatever is most precious is surrendered to him. Jesus says, that's beautiful. Whenever we see Jesus of such supreme value that whatever is most costly to us, whatever we hold on to most tightly, we say, okay, I am giving that over to you. That's beautiful to Jesus. And he says, this is a beautiful act that she has done. He continues on. And he says this in verse 7. You always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. Now, just a word about this. Jesus certainly is not knocking the poor. We see that throughout scripture that he calls us to be aware of the poor, especially the poor believers around us. We see it throughout the, the epistles. James says, if a poor one walks in your midst, you shouldn't say, hey, 
Lord's blessing on you. Let them walk away when you see their needs. But you should have a faith that overflows in works. 1 John chapter 3 has that same idea that if there's a brother or sister among you that is needy and poor and you see their needs and you just let them go on their way, that's not genuine love. So Jesus is coming alongside and he's not denigrating the poor. What he's doing is establishing priorities. You think about the Ten Commandments and the way that they're laid out. What do the first four commandments point to? Our love for God. Second six, our love for our fellow man. And when Jesus gets to this, he can say the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Get your priorities right. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what is beautiful here. When our priorities are right, when that in our life, which is costly and precious to us, we say to God, okay, I love you so much. I'm surrendering this to you. It belongs to you. In 8 and 9, Jesus then closes out the conversation with three statements. He says in verse 8, she has done what she could. What she has, she's offered it to the Lord. It's the same idea if you think about the widow who is in the temple complex. She comes with these two coins and Jesus draws the attention of his disciples to those who are walking by that treasury box. There are some who are dropping in like all kinds of coins. And then here comes this widow. She has what she has and she gives it to the Lord. It's like 100% everything that belongs to me belongs to you, Lord. I'm going to use it for you. And she says, this worship from this widow, it's beautiful. It's good. He says, she has done what she could. This is right. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And you can think, here's Jesus in the middle of this room, understanding that in just two to three days, his body is going to be crucified on a cross. He will be dead. And then thirdly, he says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And that has certainly come true. You just think about this statement and just let it noodle around in your mind for a moment that this little act that's recorded in the Gospels has gone with the tradition of Christianity. It's gone wherever the Gospel has been preached. So, you know, how many miles is it from Jerusalem or from Bethany to here? Six, seven thousand miles? I don't know. But it's being talked about today, 2,000 years later. So clearly... Jesus looks at the act of sacrifice on behalf of this woman and teaches us that it is a good and beautiful thing to give to him. Then 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the 12. I mean, following right on the heels of what's just taken place, what he's seen happen. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the 12, he went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Here's a betraying follower of Jesus. And when they heard it, oh man, this makes them happy and glad. They promised, what did they promise Judas here? They promised to give him money. And so here you see a guy who is arguing about the money that was wasted on Jesus and in his mind thinking, hmm, I should be the one that's benefiting from it. So he sought an opportunity to betray him. So that's the story there. Now, what has Mark done? Mark has given us an example of an enemy, and he's given us an example of somebody who betrays at the end. And right in the middle, it's like this sandwich structure. He has shown us 
what an act of worship looks like to God. Here is a woman who loves Jesus and loves him extravagantly and is devoted to him. And Jesus is showing, or Mark is showing us that Jesus, Jesus is truly worth this kind of response and this kind of acceptance from your heart. And the question that ought to be sort of bouncing around in our minds right now is this. Do I value Jesus to the point that everything in my life would be surrendered to him? I mean, I can't personally hand over everything to him today. That's why Jesus says she can do this right now because I'm not here forever, but the poor you will have with you always. But the concept is this. Is that, is Jesus worthy of all those things that are precious to me? And the reality is that we were designed in such a way that he would be. And what's beautiful is when our lives line up with his beauty. And when our lives are given over to him and our resources are surrendered to him so that Jesus gets everything. We need to talk about that for just a moment. But before we get there, I think I've slipped a couple of times through the sermon. I think I've used her name. I was intending not to use her name because Mark doesn't use her name. Who is this woman in Mark 14? The parallel passage in John 12 tells us that this woman is Mary. Not Mary, Jesus' mother, but Mary, the sister of Martha. Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Why is Mary responding this way? John chapter 12, that parallel account, is preceded by John chapter 11. And what has happened in John chapter 11? Jesus was summoned to come, help my brother, he's sick. He's at the point of death and Jesus says, wait just a minute, in his wisdom, I need to pause so that the glory of God might be on display. And he doesn't come and rush to Lazarus's healing right away. He waits for a few days. He waits a good three to four days after he's dead so that everybody knows he's dead, dead. No sleeping here. His body's been wrapped placed in a tomb. And Jesus shows up in John chapter 11 where there's all kinds of weeping and mourning. And you can imagine Mary, the sister of Lazarus, being there. And the question is, if you would have come earlier, you could have saved him. That was the statement that was made. Jesus knows all along what he's going to do. And he says, open up the tomb. His body stinks in there. Don't do this. This is ugly. This is messed up. Remove the stone from the tomb. And so they backed the stone up from the tomb. And with the two sisters standing there, Mary included, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, come forth. And the rustle in the tomb starts to take place. And here comes Lazarus out of the tomb. How are you going to respond when God gives you something like that? Here's Mary. Everything in my life belongs to you. The grace that you have shown to me, God, the grace that you have shown to me, Jesus, it belongs to you. 
John chapter 12 is a right response to what has happened in John chapter 11. And so the question is, what has God done for you that would elicit this kind of, or, or pull out this kind of response from the heart? He has done more for you than raise your dead brother from the grave. What has he done? Let's go to Romans chapter, take your Bible, go to Romans chapter 11 for just a moment. Romans 11, starting in verse 28. As regards the gospel... They are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And here Paul is just talking about the mystery of how God is going to bring people to himself. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You think about that statement here. The gifts and the calling of God, they can't be undone. The gift that God does, the electing that God does, I should say, the gift that God gives, it can't be undone. Just like dead Lazarus in the tomb, if, if the calling goes to Lazarus from God to wake up and come out of the tomb. You can't revoke that calling on Lazarus. It's going to happen. And so Paul is saying this, that the gifts that God has given to us and the calling that he has sent out to each one of us, it can't be undone. It's going to happen. And so each one of us, we're like the dead Lazarus, spiritually dead, and yet it was God who called out to us and said, wake up, receive my salvation. And in faith we did. Don't get lost in the mystery of it. Just jump into the grace of it and enjoy it. That that's who we were. And so he goes on and continues in verse 30. For just as you at one time were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. And here's, without getting too much into what has happened in the past, Paul's theme is that God has been merciful to each one of us. We didn't deserve this. We didn't deserve God's grace that he's been talking about in chapters 1 through 11 where Christ has come and God demonstrates his love towards us. We don't de deserve it at all. And so he finishes up here in saying that we have received mercy, verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And so here we are, those who deserve God's judgment are receiving God's kindness. So folks, in short, what we deserve is eternal judgment under God's wrath forever and ever. And yet he has approached us in mercy and said, here's life through Jesus. And he gives us this life 
when we come to the cross recognizing our sin against God deserves judgment, and the only way that I can have mercy and receive mercy is through accepting Jesus, believing in Jesus as my Savior, and God takes the Son, the life of the Son, and says, here, the life of the Son I'm going to give you as a merciful gift upon your life. It's not because of the works of you done. It's because of what I've done. I'm calling you to myself. That's how God has saved us. Now, what kind of response should that draw out? Here's Mary. It's an extravagant response. And what does Paul say now? Well, the end of Romans 11, verse 36 and following. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 12 verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By God's mercy that he has shown to you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, your spiritual worship. Here's what's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to extravagantly worship the Lord with your life. Everything that we have now, belongs to God because or in response to his kindness. That's the kind of motive that we can have. God, I see your kindness towards me. I see what you've given to me. Now, on behalf of the mercies of God, Paul says, surrender. So what can that look like? Should this affect our financial spending? Absolutely, it should. Does it mean that we take all of our life savings, come and, and just drop one little envelope in the back offering plate and say, okay, I'm going out on faith. That's not the idea that he has, although it will affect the way that we use our money. It's that all of our life now is given over to God. God, you are the steward. You are the Lord. I, you are the Lord of it. I'm the steward of what you've given to me. I want this to be lived out in response to you. And sometimes it's just going to look downright crazy. So let me speak to the men of our church for just a moment. Husbands and dads, and I'm speaking to myself here as well. How does your family see the value of Jesus in your life? How does that value of Jesus get displayed in your home? Do they see extravagant value placed on Jesus. Does your family see that? And again, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. What does your wife see in terms of the affections and ambitions that pour out of your life? What do your kids see as being your drive do they see a man who, yes, has to go to work and has to provide and does chores around the house? All that stuff is necessary just to live. But does your family see a man who says, all of that is under the authority of God and I am going to lead this family in a way that looks really different than the rest of the world? I'm going to be extravagantly committed to leading my family towards Jesus. Some people might think I'm a nut. Why don't you spend your time differently? Why don't you spend your resources differently? Why don't you schedule your family with the order of the events, the calendar differently? Some people might think that. Some people, guys, might think you're a nut. 
And I think more and more men that we try to sort of find that sweet spot, that sweet spot of drifting in between where, yes, we have one foot inside of a commitment to the Lord and another foot inside of a commitment to ourselves. And yet, here this chapter calls us to extravagantly be giving all of our lives to the Lord. We're going to give up everything for him. All of it falls under the lordship of Jesus. That is a beautiful thing. All of us, men, women, children, this affects our priorities. This affects our time. This affects the way that we look at one another. I was talking with a sister in Christ at one point, and she was sharing how the truth of this passage came to bear on her life. She had gone through a very difficult time. She was in the hospital. She was wondering if things were going to work out maritally. Depression, loss, all that kind of stuff was going on. And in the middle of those challenges, God taught her that if she had nothing else but God alone, she could be joyful because of who he is. And that's where Mary is. Mary's like, I have Jesus, and I can be joyful because of who he is. So this passage leaves us asking a question. What is beautiful? What is beautiful? Is it a life that gets? Is it a life that gives? Where does it start? It starts with eyes that see. Eyes that see Jesus for who he is as the Savior. So may we this week see that it is a beautiful thing to pour out our lives in obedience and extravagant worship to the Lord. May we be extravagant in our worship to him this week. Let's pray.